And we're back live with the Midland boys, I guess. <laughs> Got the my Midland, boy. The Midland Mafia. Midland Mafia. The Midland Mafia. <laughs> the, the, it's the real COM, City of Midland. Yeah. <laughs> Shots fired 20 <laughs> seconds into the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So we've got my homie, Colin McClellan. Colin, thank you so much for uh, stepping in as the guest co-host, as people know at this point on What the Funk. We have different rotating co-hosts, and then we have a different guest that we like to feature every week. So Colin's stepping in this week for a couple reasons. One, he and Andy, both Midland guys, uh, Andrew De La Rosa is our guest. And also, I think you guys worked together at some point, like in the field, right? That was when you were earlier on in your career, Colin? Yeah, I think uh, 2012, we started working together. Uh, I think 2012 to 2013, uh, me and Andy ran around the uh, oil field. We were just some little worms back then, uh, <laughs> running wire line. Nice. When you were seven years old, the youngest man ever on a rig. <laughs> That's right. I think, uh, Andy, when, when did you start running wireline? It was, uh, September, uh, 2011 started over, over at uh superior wireline services before they became neighbors. Yeah. Um, worked was there. That the for, same, was that the same superior from, uh, superior frack? Yeah. Their frack was, uh, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but pretty terrible. Okay. At least <laughs> whenever <laughs> we were running with so them. Superior, superior frack was hands down the worst frack fleet out in West Texas during that time. I remember the scene, one of their, uh, they burned one of their pumps down to the ground oh on location. And it's a, uh, it's funny that you say that. Cause uh, one of the first fracks I ever went on, um, we had to run off location cause three pump trucks had caught on fire. I remember I stopped running and um, the, my manager during time, he just passed me like, man, keep running. And I was like, oh, you know, crap, how far do I got to keep going? But, you know, I was, as like Colin said, I was pretty, I was pretty wormy back then. So I didn't really understand the dangers of it. Yeah. The one time I saw a pump, uh, burned down to the ground, it was that time at superior. And what essentially happened was a hydraulic hose busted and then started spraying the turbo. And so you just had this huge fire and, uh, the superior hand runs over with like a little fire extinguisher and puts the fire out and afterwards the company man's like hey it's like i really appreciate that bravery but i better never see you do that shit again <laughs> oh man <laughs> oh my god yeah so th- this is fun already i so I, you know i'm a back office guy for the most part i was telling andy some of my background which colin you already know like new england guy randomly ended up in oil and gas tech in 2007 and i've, I've really enjoyed my 15 plus years in the industry. But one thing I haven't done is spend a lot of time in the field. So you guys are already throwing around what the hell is that? Uh, terms and acronyms and things like that. Um, so let's start with the basics. Andy, what is wireline for people that aren't familiar? Like I hear this term a lot, but explain to the listeners that may not know the field and oil and gas terminology as well. What's wireline? All right. So wireline is just a Big old is a it's a big reel of conductive cable that's set on the back of a truck. There's a command center which we call the uh, the shooter's cab, and you you run the wire into the into the oil and gas wells. You, you can run you know all different types of tools, uh, perforating guns, uh, logging tools, casing caliper inspections. Uh, it's been around for a little bit over 100 years. Slumberjay started off with it. Some of the the first uh, wireline tools they were running were uh, logging tools just to get um properties of the well bore exactly you know what what's behind 
<clears throat> these uh these this casing, this wall, the cement, stuff like that. It's um just oil and gas exploration, just to be able to uh, run various tools and stuff off that conductive cable. Yeah. How far how far down does the wire line go? It varies. Um, like we just got a brand new drum. It has thirty five thousand feet of wire line, which I mean we're not going to go that deep. Some of the wells that we're going into, um, they're horizontal wells, so they're true like they'll be maybe like 22,000 feet deep, but that's not true vertical depth, like true vertical depth, which means it's just, you know, straight up and down. What's the accurate length of it? Maybe about 9,000, 10,000 feet, <clears throat> but they'll, they'll go down, they'll kick off, they'll go horizontal for maybe about two, three more, uh, three more miles laterally. Jeremy, if you've ever seen uh, Andy's pictures that he always takes from the, the yeah. cab, the inside of the truck, you know, you have these giant, uh trucks or semi trucks and they have a big shooter's cab inside and so you walk into these shooters cabs and you've got uh, your control panel and that's andy's job he's the engineer and he sits there and he controls the uh spool and then you got a, a whole rack of computers and andy you'll appreciate this the first wireline truck i ever saw in 2010 was that on a drilling rig and it was this guy in a pickup truck and he ran a spool out of the bed of his pickup truck and then like had like the back seat essentially like cut out in his pickup truck to like where you could look out the window. And so that was my um, understanding of wireline. And then the next time we did pipe recovery, Halliburton brought out a full size logger. I'm like, dude, what the hell is this thing? It was like a spaceship. <laughs> and so I always think about that, how like my first experience of wireline was just some dude in a pickup truck. And uh, you know, these trucks are pretty, pretty advanced. And um, you know, Andy, tell us about like, what is the makeup of a wireline crew and what is your position? Well, it varies on what kind of operations going to be running. Like the stuff that we're doing right now, it's all completion work, which is on, we're, we're doing a, we're fracking a bunch of horizontal wells and you uh, typically these crews, it's um, so you'll have one truck and they run a, a, sh a shift work, usually about 12 hours per shift. It's 24 hour operation. So you'll have your day crew and your night crew. Each crew will uh, have at least two to three people on the ground, which you call your operators, and they'll be um, they'll be there with you know by experience. You'll have your your bottom of your totem pole, which is you know basically your worm, your your junior operator. Then you have a middle guy, and then you have your your lead operator, which kind of just runs operations on the ground while you're inside of the truck running it. So the leader of the whole entire crew is going to be your wireline engineer, which the, the title is it's um I mean we're not really engineers. In reality, we're just wireline supervisors. So that's really what it consists of. So you have your wireline supervisor, your lead operator, your middleman, and your third guy. But some companies like us, we actually, I mean, we we don't, the workforce is, workforce is hurting on the labor side. So we've had to uh, minimize our crews down to only just, you know, two operators on the ground. And then, you know, me inside the truck running, which requires me to start uh, handling a lot more workload than what I'm already used to from just running the truck, just to be able to help with my guys. You know, there's a lot of engineers out there. I mean, they won't even get out of the truck. They'll be just sitting there a whole entire time watching their guys in the window bust their butt yeah. out there and stuff. You and I, you and I worked with some guys like that, right? We used to be the two guys out there on the ground doing all the grunt work. And let's talk about the labor shortage here in nice. a little bit. Um, you know that that'll be um, pretty interesting to hear from your perspective, boots on the ground. Uh, but first, before we do that. You know, it sounds like you're doing a lot of uh, perforation work on frack jobs. And so wireline is a critical component of the fracking process. Um, why don't you tell us real quick and anyone listening, you know, what role wireline plays in perforation and setting a plug and uh, perforating? 
So with the when you're when you're uh, running uh, hydraulic fracturing, which I don't think a lot of people really realize this, they just I mean people especially outside of the industry they just they uh, they think that you know okay there's a hole in the ground, then a bunch of trucks come in and they frack it and they get oil and gas. Well, they're leaving out key components out of that whole entire process, which is wireline. I mean you can't just go to a well and expect it to just frack, especially if there's casing. All that's going to happen is that well is going to pressure up. You're not going to have nowhere for that fluid to be able to travel, for that sand to be able to travel, all that stuff like that. So what Wireline does is they go in with their perforating guns, and usually what they'll do is once. Uh, so let's say that it's the first, the very first uh, Wireline run on it, which normally you call that the tow stage. It's uh, the very first uh, perforating gun gets sent down hole with the plug. They're, the way that they're able to pump it down is they'll have something like a wet shoe or a hydraulic sleeve on the very bottom. So a pump down pumps will come in and they'll start to pressure up on the well. Well, once it gets to a certain pressure, that that uh, that that wet shoe on the bottom or the hydraulic sleeve is going to open up and it's going to allow for fluid to travel into formation. So with that, you have you have fluid displacement. You're able to pump tools into the well. So you pump down the the first stage, you set the plug. That zone, right, that area behind that plug is isolated. So you come up and, you know, some companies, they may pressure test the plug, especially if it's ball in place like that. Come up and you'll start firing your perforating guns while they're moving, which they call shooting on the fly. Those holes right there, they connect your casing to your reservoir. So with that, so they have they have all those um, perforations in there. Those uh, perforations go in and they create small fractures. So wireline retrieves their tools out of the hole. They start pumping with, fr- uh, with the hydraulic fracturing. You have your your water, your sand like that. And all that's being pushed until those perforations is opening up those fractures. It's just, it's literally, that's what it is just a hairline fracture. That's what they got the term from hydraulic fracturing. May I have a question for you on these, uh, on these wet shoes, because I don't think I've seen these uh, personally, you know, back when we did horizontals, uh, we would do the toe prep with like TCP uh, yeah. guns and coil tubing. And so how do these wet shoes work? Uh now, I mean, is this uh, installed in the casing, in the production casing? And then, um, you know, you got you got a sleeve that you're able to activate. How does that actually work? Yeah, it'll be on the, uh, I guess, the the very, uh, I don't know what you call it. What would it be the end? I guess the very first sleeve that you're run down hole. I don't know the correct terminology because, you know, I don't, I'm not on the drilling side and all yeah. that. But from what yeah. I do know is just it's it's cement with the, with the, a mixture of maybe different types of chemicals and everything and what those what those additives do is it doesn't allow the cement to solidify. So once they pump that pressure, you know, or they're pumping the fluid, the pressure gets starts to build up so much that it literally just washes it away into formation. So you're able to get fluid back there and the stuff yeah. with hydraulic sleeves, you know, it's kind of the same thing. It's just the sleeve will open up when it gets to a certain pressure. You want to, y'all want to hear a funny story. I don't, Andy, I don't know if you got to do this, but uh, you're just talking about retarding cement and um, keeping it from setting. Um, did you ever have to dump cement with a cement biller back in the day? All the and time. Like mix, mix cement on. <laughs> so, yeah. Jeremy, you want to hear like how poor boy this is? Is like we used to run like we would run like a uh, we'd run a plug down hole and set the plug and then we dump uh, cement on top of that plug. So you have this tool. It's called a cement baler. And all it is is like a pipe that you fill cement with and has a piece of glass on the bottom and you explode that piece of glass and the cement falls out. And, uh, we used to, we'd get a 55 gallon barrel drum and plastic drum and we'd cut it in half. And then we'd mix like a few bags of cement in there, water, mix it. And then this old hand that I used to work with, his name was, uh, Monty, uh, he'd have his poor, uh, Coca-Cola 
into the cement <laughs> oh to, he's like, yeah, this is, this is retarded to uh, keep it from flash setting. And so I just always laugh that we were like dumping the cement. There was like no scientific process. It was just like, oh yeah, looks thick enough. Put some Coca-Cola in it. That's, that's pretty much it. I mean, you'd be mixing the cement right there next to the workover rig with some freaking shovels. If you were lucky, you had a with a little cement paddle. Yeah, no, dude, the cement paddles, like I remember when we finally got one of those, but it was always just like sitting there mixing it with a shovel. Oh, and then God. I remember finally we got like a paddle with a drill and I'm like, oh shit, we're fancy now. Oh yeah. You've got a multi-billion dollar industry with with multi-million dollar fracks and you've got a bunch of dudes mixing cement and putting cans of coca-cola in it <laughs> dumping it twenty thousand feet into the ground yeah that was it. you had asked me earlier about like what like wireline consists of and that was, that was another thing i forgot of i mean like with the hydraulic fracturing and everything that's that's your completion work but then stuff that colin's talking about right there that's more like on the production side you know yeah. the whole thing behind that cement is just to be a secondary boundary whenever you set a plug and stuff yeah, the thing with wireline that's really interesting about wireline is it's probably the most versatile tool used in the oil and gas industry because it can be used in open hole, case hole, it can be used in completions and drilling and production. And so, you know, the type of work that Andy's doing out there right now, um, stage work is like really popular. But, you know, like Andy, when I moved down to South Texas and I was like working in old conventional fields, like all we did was through tubing work. And it was just like little, I mean, you know, three to $10,000 jobs. And you, you learn a lot because you yeah. see a lot of different stuff. But uh, yeah, you know, it was just like really interesting doing um, some of that type of stuff. And, you know, pipe recovery um, is super um, complex and takes a ton of knowledge. So um, yeah, wireline is just a really interesting application and tool and seeing how it's used in pretty much all facets of oil and gas wells. This is this is really entertaining and informative stuff. So when I hear people say like, "We just lost a million dollars worth of tools downhole," does the wireline is that what pulls those tools out effectively? Like, is that part of what you do as well, or is it more the process of going down versus pulling things out? Well, it, it depends on like, you know, what tools you're running and you know when did you lose the tools? Because you you can lose tools like on a drilling rig, on a workover rig, and then like during the fracks, like okay, we lost tools downhole. With stuff like on drilling rigs, you know, that's that could be like drill string that you lost down hole. But like normally, like with wireline, okay, I lost tools nine times out of ten, it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be on a frack and it's gonna be a perforating gun, whether yep. someone accidentally shut the well or they got pumped off, or just it could be, you know, different types of things just to be able to be severed from the cable itself. To be, you know, most times when they're retrieving it, um, the fastest way that I've I've seen uh, recently is running braided line, which just is another form of wireline, is just it's it's not conductive cable. It's, it's, it's thickness. It's a lot, it's, it's bigger. And, you know, the purpose of that is just to have the strength to be able to put, you know, to jar these tools out of, you know, if, if they're wedged in the casing or if it's stuck on a plug or whatever. Yeah. Jeremy, to add on like your wireline, uh, you know, he was just talking about wireline being conductive. Essentially it's a steel braided line. And in the middle of it, you have um, conductive line. That way you can shoot electricity all the way down down a well and so you don't really yeah. have much tensile strength like andy what you know what's max that you can pull on your typical line and, and wire line i mean it's not much well, well the, the stuff that i run it's it's a it's your conventional cable which is steel line right there and the size of it is 9 30 seconds when i say that that's like the outer diameter that's the thickness of it yep so with that like the breaking strength to where the the wire line itself would just snap like <laughs> it would, it's around ten thousand pounds 
But then you have something that's called at the very end of the, the whip end of the wire line, you, you have a, um, a cable head, which you got to tie these armors back and run it through this uh, type of brass that we call bell, a bell. And that's called reheading through the cable head. That right there, um, depending on the depth, depending on the weight of the tools, it has a, um, a weak point to where it just it, it, it disconnects from the cable head and you leave the tools out. Like I said, it, it all just depends. It, it could be a vertical well or a horizontal well. From there, you just you, there's actual calculations that you got to do for there's a breaking strength for each individual armor. You know, you multiply and all that stuff, and it's going to give you like I don't know, maybe like five thousand, four thousand pounds. And once you get to that point, you're gonna you're gonna pull out a rope socket. Yeah, I think one thing a lot of people don't appreciate um, outside the industry is how much uh, math and engineering yeah. uh, people like you use that in the field, right? And yeah. And a lot of people probably think that. You know, we're just a bunch of dumb field hands, but <laughs> there's there's a lot of uh, mathematics and engineering that go into it. And uh, Andy, you know this. I mean, when you lose tools on wireline, um, you have to use a lot of critical thinking to think through, um, you know, like if you, uh, uh, you know, get a rat nest up and, you know, you start getting a rat nest or yeah. uh, what's the term called uh, when uh, one of your lines? Uh, Ice cream. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, high strands. So um, you run into problems like that. And I mean, you have to use some pretty serious critical thinking skills. And that's why people like you make the big bucks because you get in a situation like that and uh, you have the experience to, to know how to get out of it. So um, how long did it take you to get up from you know operator, from being the one turning a wrench, working the ground to uh, being able to fully run a wireline truck? So... I, I was on the ground as an operator for about two and a half years. And during that time, like I'd say for maybe like six or eight months, I was your, your junior operator. And I had another operator above me around the time that we met, I, I was a lead operator during that time. So you took off from pioneer and I can't remember how much longer I was on the, I was on the ground for, but I started training. I trained for probably about four or six months with a, a senior wireline engineer. He just kind of guided me, you know, showed me everything his way and stuff like that. Went to uh, school with uh, Pioneer Wireline Services. It was uh, supposed to be a month long, but during this time, I mean, the barrel was $100. So I was there for two weeks. My boss came <laughs> back home for a little bit. And my boss was like, hey, we're taking That's, like, that's, that's typical oil field, right? <laughs> you know enough. Get out there. <laughs> yeah, pretty much it. I mean, you could train. I don't know. for Like I said, I trained for about four, six months. I could have trained for a year. I still wouldn't have been ready. And that's what I tell some of the guys that are just breaking out. Now, that's what you call when you go from being an operator to being the wireline supervisor, as you call it, breaking out. I tell them now, I was like, you're not going to be ready. You're never going to be ready. I was like, I wasn't ready. It's just something that you learn as years go on. You have trial and error and you learn from other, from people's mistakes and your own mistakes. Yeah, no, that's super important. You know, everyone always wants to wait until they're ready and you just, there's never a right time. Right? No, you're never ready. Yeah, you're never. You know, never and ready. that, I can equate that too. And, you know, Colin, both of us, I guess all of us are entrepreneurs, right? We, we've got our businesses and like the amount of things that I've made mistakes on have just made me realize I'm never really going to know everything, right? I'll just continue to sort of make mistakes and learn as I evolve through the process, right? There's yeah. less risk with what I'm doing, with what you're doing than, you know, a very expensive wireline job down hole. But nonetheless, yeah. it's, it's sort of a, a life lesson, right? Whether you're in the field, you're in the back office, you're running a business, like yeah. just Andy accepting a, you're never going to know. Andy has a lot more fun because his fuck ups are like, 
you know, that walk of shame over to the company man to tell yeah. them that <laughs> you just lost stools. Oh man, I have, I've, I have, I've had. Some, I mean, every doesn't matter how good you are. Every every engineer messes up, and I have some pretty good ones. It's, it's crazy. My oh, boss yeah. just texts me. Um, so right now, um, we're doing some toe preps, like I was talking about earlier, for one of our customers, the first stage. And we are the deepest that we've ever been as a company. And they wow. are shooting this gun at 25,000, 15 feet in the lateral. Wow. That's crazy. Oof. Yeah, that's here, that's here in West Texas. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, Andy, talk about what's changed since me and you ran exactly. our line together back in, uh, you know, 2012, 2013 timeframe. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a lot's changed in, um, one, how much work has to be done for some of these operators because y'all's guns come out, man, they're, they're oh. spoiled, man. The guns come out. So, Jeremy, me and Andy used to have to uh, build all of our guns. And so they'd come in like, you know, different sizes, but, you know, like three to five foot barrels. And yeah. you'd have to wire them, get your subs on, wrench them together, and, and then test them. And the worst is like you build all these guns, put them together spend an hour sending them down a hole and then you have a short and the guns don't go off and so then you get your ass chewed out um you know i know today that a lot of guns are pre-built for these uh for these guys coming out what other major changes have you seen andy in terms of uh technology and um you know just anything else that's changed over the years dude and just just a short amount of time from whenever me and you work together and it's it's less than 10 years from last time me and you were in the field yeah i mean it's it's like leaps and bounds so you for example like you're talking about you have our the gun perforating systems which well me and colin shot back then in the day it's they're pretty much almost 100 percent phased out except for more in the conventional work and those were for the your vertical fracks was just your wells that are up you know just straight vertical um those guns were called uh, eb pressure activated guns and it's like you said you'd have to wire them up each one by one you go down a hole and let's say you you're able to set the plug successfully but then you come up to try to shoot the gun and you have a misrun, none of those guns are going to shoot. Or it could be this, you know, vice versa. If you go down, try to set the plug, it doesn't set. Well, none of that gun's going to shoot. So now you have that long ass, uh, I guess, almost like a, a walk of shame where you're having to bring the tools back out of hole. And you can't bring it back out of, out of hole at the same speed because if that plug's still there, if you come out on ass, you can get hung up and then rip out a rope socket. So you're yeah, just so, so, so the, the walk of shame is you're holding up this multi million dollar job. You got frat crew pissed off at you, water yeah. transfer pissed off at you, the EMP pissed off at you, right. and um, because your tool didn't work like it was supposed to. And there's all kinds of reasons, you yeah. know, what could happen, but it's always the operator's fault. So, like now, now uh, with the perforating gun systems, you have a lot of them which are 100% disposable, and by by that it means like once you perforate the gun, you just throw it to the trash can. Like whenever me and Colin do it, when the gun came out of the hole, the only thing that we throw to the trash is just the barrel itself. You'd have these things where where you have all the wiring and like another explosive unit, call it, we call them subs. And there'd be each individual one, you know, some guns could have, you know, no subs at all. So, or, you know, maybe just two subs, like your head sub and your bottom one, because it's just one single gun. But then you could have clusters of guns that are like, are anywhere from like, you know, back in the day when me and Colin are doing like maybe like five, seven guns. Now you have some that are, I've heard is uh, some operators doing as much as 30, 30 guns per string. Whoa. But at the, but the Wait, same time, they don't. Are you, you telling me that these guys don't have to clean subs anymore? There is. Yes. There's this dude, there's a hundred percent disposal. Okay. So a uh, Pentel wireline, they shoot 100% disposable. Whenever they come out of the hole, the guns perforate and everything, the setting tool trash, the guns trash. The only thing they keep is the freaking CCL dude. There's no redress the setting tool. There's no cleaning the subs or anything like that. Even some of them, dude, the guns are already have the detonator in them. All they got to do is just pull like an interrupter out of it. 
with us, we the, the perforating system we use, we uh, we clean our subs, but they're thousand times easier than whenever um, we were connecting. So there's very little wiring now these days um, yeah. with trucks. We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have believed that back in the day. Man. Oh, yeah, I mean, just think about how much like physical manual work there is and putting guns together, wiring them together. Then you get them out. You have to break them down. You have to clean up, you know, take off your O-rings, uh, clean off the subs. I mean, redress a, a, a setting tool. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, yeah. of, of work there to do. It was. The vertical days were way harder than what they are today. Like huh. operators these days are 100% spoiled. And this is my philo- this is what I this is what I believe. If you're a wireline operator, and I'm not trying to knock anyone down, just starting an industry because by all means we need as many people into the industry as we can. But yep. coming in coming into wireline now, just starting off, you're not like nowhere near the knowledge or the skill the skill uh, set as what the operators were for, uh, back in the day, whenever I first started or whenever Colin was doing it. Just and that's not their fault. That. That's just advance, advancement in technology. It makes sense. Yeah. Well, so I want to I take a step back here a little bit. Um, so, Andy, man, you, you, first of all, you could teach a class on this. Like, this is, this is pretty impressive stuff. But how did you get into this? Like, give me your background a little bit. Did you grow up in West Texas and sort of always saw the oil field around you? And realized it was a good opportunity to make money or were you always interested sort of in the science and the engineering like how did you build this as a career and what was your upbringing like so i uh i graduated from lee high school in 2006 and um as soon as i graduated i started working with the independent school district for like three and a half years so that's where i got my cdl at okay. uh, from there i transitioned to construction i worked for a, a mom and pop company called midwest class which was just commercial and um a commercial and, and uh was it uh, residential uh, insulation of glass doors, stuff like that. So the guy that that uh, I was under, he took off and he became a packer hand, which they those are downhole isolation tools in the oil field. And I was I don't know, I was just kind of getting burned out. And like I said, the oil, the oil field's always been it was always around me, but I I didn't want to work in it. Like that was just I was like oh, I remember telling myself I'm never going to work in the oil field, blah blah blah. So I he had been gone for a little bit, and I guess I was getting burned out. And I told him I was like, dude, um, I want to do something else. Like I'm just burned out here. He's like, man, you ever heard of wireline? I'm like, no. Nah. It's like, oh, it's easy, man. All you're going to do is just drive a truck. I was like, shoot, man, I can do that. You know, I haven't used my, my CDL in like two years, but I can still drive. So he told me to go look for this place, which uh, it was called Wood Group Wireline. And little did I know that during the time they got sold out and became GE Wireline. So I'm there driving up and down Business 20 on the front road looking for yep. this, you know, Wood Group Wireline. Little I know I'm passing it the whole entire time. It's just called GE. So I turn down the street and I see this place called uh, Gray Wireline. So I get off go to open the door. It's locked. I was like, all right, whatever. Right next door to me is another wireline shop called Superior. I walk in and manager saw me and I was like, Hey man, you know, I'm interested in applying. He asked me if I had any experience. I told him, no, you know, I'm willing to learn. He's like, well, you have your CDL. I'm like, yes, sir. It's like, oh shoot, man, you already got half the battle won. You know, back then there was this, like the barrel was a hundred dollars. Everyone was trying to find, you know, drivers and all that, but just not a lot of people had their CDLs. It's even worse today. It's way easier to get your CDL back then than what it is today. So they said it was way easier back then. Oh, to get your CDL big time, dude. Like now to get your CDL, yeah. you, I mean, Texas just implemented a new law that just passed, uh, I think last April, I believe so, somewhere right at the beginning of 2022. And you have to take these um, courses before you can actually go to, I guess, and start, you know, taking the test to get your CDL. Cause back then it was just, you took like, I think like four or five computer tests and then you actually drove. Now you have to take like, I don't know how long the course is, but you have to, but you have to do that. 
then you can go and start taking those classes. Then you have to go and, you know, take your test to pass. And the driving test now, like you pretty much have to be like, I guess, like an amateur mechanic to be wow. able to, you know, do it. Cause there's been such a high influx of, of wrecks, especially here in Midland, Odessa, that I think that, you know, they started passing all these laws to make sure that we don't have all these, you know, amateur drivers and stuff like that. on the but road. It was already pretty tough back in the day. I felt the first time. I, I failed, I failed a, <laughs> the general knowledge test every single time until I actually studied. When I studied, then I passed. <laughs> I, failed, I failed the general knowledge and then I failed my first driving test too. I was like, damn, I don't know shit about driving a truck. <laughs> Dude, um, so when I took my CDL, I took it on an automatic. And now if you take it on an automatic, that's all you're allowed to drive. So you have to go wow. and take it like, you know, on a, on a manual, yeah, at least here in Texas, those are the rules. I don't know when it, yeah. comes, you know, when it comes to other States and stuff. And for people listening who haven't been to Midland, Texas, it's some of the scariest, craziest driving out there that you've ever seen. Right. So you really do or should have a high bar for getting a CDL just because of how insane the roads are out there. I mean, you, you hear about accidents and, and, sadly people dying all the time but i mean you're talking about big heavy equipment going down roads at at 100 miles an hour it's scary man that that really took me by storm the first time i was out there like wow this yeah i mean it's like mad max and the thunderdome you know you're on these two-lane roads you know and you're just zooming past semi-trucks and what andy was saying is a lot you know especially the sand haulers and uh Water haulers are notorious for just being, uh, you know, kind of balls to the wall and uh, super dangerous. So I'm glad that, you know, standards for driving are being increased a bit because, like, you know, you're driving a 50,000 pound truck. You should know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. For real. For real. So, Andy, let's talk about uh, what you've been doing on the content side over the last, I don't know, two years or so. Yeah. you know, I think it's super important work because, you know, our company, Digital Wildcatters, our mission is to change the way the world thinks about energy. And yeah. part of that is raising energy IQ among society because so many people don't understand the energy industry, which is um, easy to be upset about. But also, if you put ourselves in their shoes, you know, if you grew up in New York City, yep. why would you know anything about energy? Like, you've never had a medium to learn about it. Yep. You don't know anyone that works in energy. Um, you know, if like guys like us that grew up in Midland with, you know, the oil field right there in our backyard, um, you know, it was easy for us to uh, be connected to it. And so now with social media, we have the ability to create content and show people. And, you know, you've been able to build up a nice little uh, following on uh, Twitter and yeah. tell your story and, uh, you know, talk about like what drove you to start doing that. Um, and just kind of talk about that, that journey and process. Man, uh, what really, t- uh, made it take off for me was just the engagement that I had from it. I would have never guessed in a million years that oil and gas would be this popular, especially on Twitter. I mean, the whole reason I even made it was to keep up with the MMA and, you know, like a lot of bands that I like to pay attention to. So I had it for, so I think I, I started really getting involved in EFT just like right after, I guess, kind of post COVID in 2020. And uh, the first person that I followed off to the community, which, you know, people aren't familiar with it, there's this big following on Twitter, which is oil and gas professionals from every single sector, whether it's guys in the fields or on the finance side called uh, EFT, which is short for Energy Finance Twitter. It's just another subset of uh, financial Twitter. So I found Colin. He's the very first person that I ever started following on, on EFT. And uh, Colin, yeah, Frax, I was like, oh, man. 
was calling, you know, hey, man, we worked together. We, we went to high school together. We grew up in Midland, Texas together, blah, blah, blah. Started following him. And I started noticing a pattern that if I would post something that was oil and gas related, especially, you know, from Wireline, like Colin would retweet it and it would get a lot of engagement. I was like, what the heck? And this is back when I had like, I think like maybe like if I was lucky, maybe a hundred people were following me during that time or whatever. So I was like, okay, cool. Then I started getting a lot of follows. Started noticing, you know, that all these people that were following me, like they weren't really who they were. Like some of them just had like all these <laughs> cartoon pictures on there. Like, you know, these, are, these are anons. And I started really, okay, that that's a freaking anon, whatever. <laughs> so I made a, a video one day and I was explaining this, uh, this third party power pack that we use on our trucks during the, our, the long uh, fracks and stuff, put it out there and it just got a crap load of engagement. I started getting a bunch of DMS and stuff. And I was like, what the heck people telling me, man, you should make a YouTube channel, this, and that, blah, blah. So I posted more stuff. So I started posting videos, just explaining wireline tools. And it just, it caught me by surprise how many people were really interested in stuff. And re- a lot of them, the, I guess the highest engagement came were from people that were the oil and gas industry, but they were on the finance side or they just exactly. worked, you know, you know, just in the offices and all that, you know, and they might've seen the terms wireline. I'm sure they heard, I mean, everyone knows what fracking is, even if you're not an oil and gas. So they're finally, okay, this is what's, this is what's going on a frack. This is why this is happening on a frack. And I was, you know, just explained like simple things like logging tools or CCLs or perforating guns or the wireline truck. And it just it took off from there. Yeah, it's, you know, it's you made a, a interesting comment about how you were surprised that people were interested in that type of stuff. And, you know, it's easy when, you know, wireline, you know, wireline, like the back of your hand, like, you know, you, you could run it with your eyes closed yeah. and, you know, you don't get excited about a Baker 20 setting tool. You've been dealing with them for over 10 years, oh, you yeah, know. Man. But it's like you get in your own little bubble and you don't realize that, hey, like, actually, I do some really interesting shit and people outside, you know, have interest in what we're doing. And, you know, I remember uh, I remember Bill Bailey coming up to me, you know, Bill Bailey's a, a great finance guy in oil and gas. And I remember him coming up to me, I think in 2021 at some event. And he's met, he's like, man, Tahano Brown, like <laughs> what he's doing, like showing us stuff out in the field. Like, he's like, that's so cool. He's like, I've never got to like see it you know he's always been so far disconnected like these guys you know finance oil and gas but they don't actually get to see where the rubber meets the road and so um you know that was what's pretty cool about twitter was like bringing different perspective and education and having like these uh collisions of people meeting and so um yeah you know and i think that's like super important work like yeah it's cool to get, you know, followers and likes, but it's more important to like actually educate people and show like, Hey, this is complex shit that we do in the energy industry with really smart people doing it. And, you know, I think a lot of people in the world think that, um, you know, electricity just comes out of the wall and they think that you just (laughs) like stick a, think that you just stick a straw in the ground and, you know, oil just, you know, shooting out, they don't understand the uh, physics that go into this and just the amount of engineering. And so giving people, you know, that first, uh, firsthand look like, Hey, boots on the ground, cell phone video, here's what we're doing. You know, we're, uh, reheading, um, or we're sending guns down hold. I mean, that's super important. 13 years for me in, in oil and gas. And the first time I ever saw perforating guns or wireline in action was off of your Twitter feed. 
Yeah. I mean, that's the reality. And I'm sure there's a bunch. I'm sure there's a bunch of people that uh, could say that same exact thing. What's uh, what what I like about being able to share content is, you know, you're, you're able to show people like, okay, the oil field isn't what you think it is. Like, especially people that don't know what it is, it's not just a hole in the ground and the oil comes out. You know, like, hey, man, you know, some some uh some companies they they frown upon it. You know, putting a recorded video out there because they they don't want it to be shown out there. It's like, but man, stuff stuff like that that's it's educational. Like Colin talks about, okay. We're not just drilling a hole in the ground and, you know, pumping a bunch of stuff and, you know, like, you know, polluting this and that. It's like, okay, man, we, this is, we're protecting our, we're able to show we're protecting our ground tables. There's multiple sets of casing in the hole. It's not just one pipe. It's three pipes that are cemented in place. And then people are like, oh, you know, we weren't aware that how environmentally conscious that oil and gas companies are, oil and gas operators, you know, are starting to become. Yeah. I mean, that's been one problem. I mean, this industry, it's no secret. It sucked at storytelling and actually, uh, contributing to changing the narrative and they always have this like, oh no, we don't want to show videos of what we're doing on location and you know, we just can't play that game anymore. Like we nope. have to we have to be able to show the world what we do. Uh Andy, I know that you know you've worked for some companies where the company men are, you know, they may be lurkers on EFT. Yeah. And so uh has there been like any, you know, do you walk on location now and you're like a celebrity? Or uh, oh, you know, people, could people follow you or, or know you? <laughs> uh, so there's a company which um, I can obviously I can't say who they are. Yeah, and the their uh, safety guy came out there. He was a, a wireline integrity safety guy, which means that was his main job was just to go out there and cover all wireline companies that go out there and make sure that they're doing things by the book and especially by their rules and stuff. And I was in the truck. I was going down hole. And he's he's just behind me sitting there. I go, hey, what's going on, man? You know, we're talking blah, 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 shooting, shooting the shit. And he looks at me, he kind of squints his eyes. He's like, man, are you, uh, is that your name De La Rosa? I'm like, no, no. no. I mean, no I'm not exaggerating at all, dude. And he's like, no, he's like, man, you, he's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah. He's like, you're, you're Donald Brown. And I was, I, I didn't want to say anything. I just kept kind of like denying it. He's like, he, he went to his phone, started looking at his Twitter. I was like, yeah, I'm him. And he goes, he's like, oh man, dude, you post good stuff, dude. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm a follower, blah, blah, blah. He's an anon, you know? I, yeah. I asked him. Oh yeah. And uh, he's like, man, you post really good stuff. And he, I was like, yeah, you know, I really appreciate it. And you know, like later on, I was like, but, you know, don't film out here. I was like, oh, you know, I know, man, I'm not dumb. <laughs> yeah. just, just, no, that's awesome though, man. Yeah. I mean, one, um, you know, it's cool to see people engaging like that. I was out in Midland. I don't know. It was either earlier this year or last year. And I was at some, uh, I don't know, they're doing uh, some event at the Horseshoe. And there was like Casey Donahue concert. And we went up there and uh, someone's like, hey, Frag Slap. And uh, ended up being uh, <laughs> one of Andy's Andy's boys, uh, one of his wireline boys. He's like, I follow you on Twitter. And so uh, the Internet's pretty cool that, um, one, you know, it gives us a platform to show the world what energy is about, but then allows us to connect with people all over the industry. So that's yeah. cool to hear that, uh, yeah. you know, some, some safety guys, like he recognize he's like, nah, you're definitely, you're definitely <laughs> can't lie to me, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Both you guys deserve, so, deserve credit for that. You know, Colin, I, I know you pushed me really hard to, to do this podcast originally. Well, tripping over the barrel and, and now subsequently this yeah. one, and it's been huge for my brand. And I think the thing that, that is awesome about it. And both of you guys are aware of this is there's a lot of people that are aware of you that you don't even know, right? They might, may have anonymous accounts. They may be watching all of your Twitter or your LinkedIn stuff or listening to a podcast like this. And what happens is they start to build 
a personal connection with you and with your brand. And then when they come up to you and see you at a conference or, or in the field or at a bar and they meet, meet you, they feel like they already know you, right? When you're just like, yeah. hold on, who, who are you? Right. And it's kind of cool. Yeah. Like many celebrity within an industry that needs more personalities, frankly. No, so it's got to be powerful for, you know, Andy goes out on location and his work already speaks for itself, but then, you know, a company man knows you or engineers yeah. know you like that's, that's pretty dope. Yeah. Uh, Andy, tell us about your little, uh, tradition you got. So I, uh, Jeremy, you'll appreciate this. Uh, one day I tweeted at Andy, I was like, Hey, I was like, write my name on a plug and send it down. Yeah. And, uh, so he writes frag slap and now all of a sudden that's like his thing is uh sending people down a hole to to frack. Andy, how many people's names do you think that you've uh, written on on guns now? I mean, it's got to be in the hundreds. Oh yeah, dude. Uh, most of my followers and then just some people that um or not most of my followers, but most of the people that I follow and then like, you know, a lot of my followers will DM me and stuff. That one that one trips me out, dude, cuz it's like you were talking about earlier. I live in my own little bubble. So wireline to me, it's just like, eh, it's wireline. And it's just, I just write in a name on a perforating gun. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, people, they really, they really like that. That one took yeah. off. I kind of see where they're coming from. Cause it's like, Hey man, you know, you're kind of like part of the, you know, history of this. Well, you're, yeah, yeah, no, it's like, yeah, it's like, dude, I'm like, it's like, I mean, I know this isn't like technically or literally right, but it's like, yeah, my name's like cemented in that well now for, <laughs> for history, you know? Oh Yeah. <laughs> So that's, uh, no, that's funny how that, uh, took off, uh, so much. Cause yeah, I'd agree with you. It's like, it's just writing, writing names. But, um, uh, I think that's like one of the most, it's probably like one of the most creative, um, things that I've seen from content creators right. of like getting people engaged with content because like, you know, some like no Instagram influencer can, you know, go <laughs> do that and, you know, so what are you going to write your name on? I don't know. What was some of these cheeks like, Hey, I'll write your name on my, on my butt cheeks or something but <laughs> it's like somebody's over here yeah, yeah that is don't give them any ideas i don't need to <laughs> i don't need to see that but oh speaking of that uh let's talk about did i see something that you're getting a waterburger tattoo i'm gonna have to man i was um, <laughs> thinking about it i was thinking about the other day and i was like oh man i freaking forgot about that bet but and so I got one. I, I got an EFT tattoo on you know on my right leg on the the outside of it. And yeah. What was the uh, <laughs> what is what is what was the bet or the wager uh, for that one? The EFT one. Yeah. Um. I said if this if this gets one thousand likes, which during that time like that was an unfathomable amount of likes for me. <laughs> I will get a a EFT tattoo, and so it got added on. Like I got like three in total. It was a roll call. Which is Kenny Lay, EFT, which is the whole community, and then Lamb yeah. Life, which is a yeah. guy that helped me come up with within EFT too. Nice. Got a thousand. I, f- I forgot how many likes it got, dude, but it went well over a thousand. And sure enough, I read my word. I, re- I retweeted it a few times to make sure that it got there. So now, what, what pushed it over was definitely you, and for sure Kenny Lay, dude. Yeah, the um, Kenny Lay. Uh, Andy likes throwing it in my face now that uh, he stay he he commits to his <laughs> his bets and I don't. So yeah, uh, I, I got oh, yeah, you got to smoke he's, that he's a, he's a man. He's a he's a man of his word, and I'm not. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but no, uh, getting getting things tattooed on you is uh, that's definitely next level. Next Amazing! Level so this is gonna be the last one for sure, dude. No more. <laughs> <laughs> no more you you gotta be careful with this. And yeah. Whataburger is awesome. I don't know if people 
you know, like Mike Umbro did an in and out video yesterday. Dude, in and out is trash. I don't know if you guys <laughs> Whataburger. This isn't even this isn't even biased for me just because I come from Texas. Like I legitimately try to enjoy In and Out. I'm just like, it's not, it's not good. good. Like That's it's not, not it's it's no. so mid that it's not even funny. Now, look, Whataburger, um, I think Whataburger is best when you're intoxicated. Right. You know, two <laughs> o'clock in the morning, those oh. french fries hit different. Um, so there's definitely some elements to that, but yeah, the whole Whataburger versus In and Out's not even uh, it's not it's a real debate. No, it's not. Yeah, it's not. And we got in and out out here now, too. Right. Because Colorado's like the new California. So um, Dude, we got one out. Katie. We got one in Houston. Do you really? Yeah. And they just need yeah. to step away and let Whataburger have their territory. Man. I know. Well, well, I'm going to take a know, picture because 90s texted me. Uh, yeah. Bun B's got his new uh, burger franchise, Trill Burger. And nice. he's trying to he's trying to take over. So we only support uh, support Trill Burgers. Bun B, oh, Houston yeah. legend, great, great rapper. <laughs> so, um, Tahano, two things, Tahano, Andy. Um, <laughs> I want, I want my uh, my Twitter mm, that funk on a uh, uh, going down hole, and I want you to put a star of David on it, right? So, speaking of yeah. that, you have a, I'm Jewish, you have a star of David tattoo on you. Talk about some of your like passion for religious theology, because we've gone back and forth. Uh, a little bit and talked about that early on, but where did sort of your passion for learning different religions and the history of it come from? Man. um, As I told you earlier, um, I grew up uh, Catholic for like 21 years and um, I gave it up. I got into, you know, I just stuff I really don't ever really talk or I don't talk about, but I got into some trouble, some, some pretty bad trouble before I got into the wireline industry. And um, I tried to uh, just, keep away from that old lifestyle that I was living before. Sure. And I started, uh, I met a group of people, some local churches here in West Texas. And, um, I just got real caught up with the Christian theology and everything. And I, I, I fell in love with, um, the old law and the new law. And this is actually, uh, I always forget about this before I did wireline. I wanted to be a, a youth minister, but <laughs> that dream kind of escaped and I became a heathen and got into the oil field. <laughs> now, you're, now, now you're degenerate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, no, that's, that's pretty funny man good for you man why well, I, I appreciate it and it, it kind of blew me away i'm like here's a latino dude in west texas that works in the oil field and uh you said something like happy hanukkah and you're like yeah hey, here's my here's my tattoo star at david <laughs> oh shit yeah. the other thing i wanted to talk about because i know we got to run here in a second is your kids like your son is like a top ranked distance runner in the state of Texas right now. right? Joey's Joey's crushing it, dude. So in the district, my son and my daughter are number one. What? In the region, yeah. In the, in the, in our district, my son and my daughter are number one in the region. My son is uh, the 15th, which we, we, we have a huge region. It's West Texas. So I can say this without like there, this is just fact. My son, Joey, he's a uh, 16. Now he's the number one uh, runner, long distance runner in Midland Odessa. It doesn't matter what age group age group and all that. So I made a That's post awesome. about this the other day and we're going to apply it to my daughter. We're doing a trial run right now. My brother who started off coaching my son, he was a stud in the late nineties and the, and the two thousands. And so was my uncle with running. So my brother was my son's and my daughter's, um, I guess, first coach. So he has a lot of connections with pro, with pro athletes, pro runners, people that actually run in the Olympics. Shout out Bryce Hopple, Midland, Texas. Um, nice. My son is going to have a professional coach now guiding him, and we're about to have our 2023 track season. And man, we're just really hoping for the best, man. Like we're just we're me and his mom are just like super like like focused when it comes to that. 
it's 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 blown us away big time like just the stuff that he does like he he holds the the record for the fastest mile at sj he holds the record for the fastest 5k at the freshman and just and just to be able to like the times i've seen he's running like this his uh, pr for the 5k this past season was a 15:43, and he ran oh that at 15 years old dude i mean this is like holy yeah, crap crazy. what's his what Andy, is are, mile are you are you fast no i'm fat i just gotta subtract a litter huh? <laughs> <laughs> so so you're uh sounded like your dad and your brother are fast and runners and uh the kids got got genes uh from your side of the family yeah but i ran but I didn't, you know i didn't take it serious it's just man i don't i don't know it's just we knew he was gonna be good in seventh grade right before covid hit but then you know he trained his whole entire offseason covid sacrifice summer and then just he's just killing it at his races man and then my daughter came out of nowhere man she just like ran it like okay well i guess i'll start running and you know like the past two years they've both gotten i think she got uh i have it right here this is just knocked something over so this is year number two for her of runner of the year and then uh it's year number two for my son of like uh, MVP. And then last year, my son was the only one from Midland, Texas to make it to um, uh, just or to regionals. I mean, just to be able to, I mean, he didn't go, he didn't win anything, but just to be able to do that at the age he's at, I mean, that's, that's incredible, man. Like the only, the only people that are beating him are kids that are, this is their last year, their seniors, yeah. you know, they already have scholarships that they've already signed and all that stuff. That's the only people that are beating him, kids that are going to freaking college to go run over there and stuff. Yeah. Like that. Well, and he's, he's barely, this is barely his sophomore year. And, you know, they've been on varsity. So my daughter's a freshman. She's on varsity. My son's, you know, he's been on varsity since he was a freshman and stuff like that. That's amazing. That's crazy. Y'all are a, uh, a family of runners. The kid's running track and Andy's running wireline. Yeah, just- man. I knew that was coming. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, Tejano Brown is the Twitter feed, T-E-J-A-N-O-B-R-O-W-N. You got Frack Slap over here. I'm mm, that funk, and I'm going to put this out on LinkedIn and Twitter. Andy, thank you so much for coming in, for schooling us on water, uh, Wireline, Whataburger, and all the other fun things that are, are passionate in your life. But uh, I appreciate you coming on, my man. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on, man. Appreciate you too, Colin. Yeah. Thanks, dude.